Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, hosted today by me, Bill Hayton, an Associate Fellow with the Asia-Pacific Programme at the London-based think tank Chatham House. With the hawks and the wolf warriors of the United States and China dialing up the rhetoric of confrontation, and both governments prepared to deploy everything from missiles to vaccines in their efforts to come out on top, we're going to examine the roles being played by two countries who find themselves stuck in the middle, both geographically and politically. How are Japan and South Korea coping in this competitive era? And what, if anything, are they doing to make Asia a safer place? I'm joined by two people who've been thinking about these issues for many years. Haruko Sato, professor at the Osaka School of International Public Policy in Japan, and Brendan Howe, professor of international relations at Iwa Women's University in South Korea. Welcome to you both. We're going to be talking about how these two countries, both significant economic players and middle-sized military powers in their own right, are coping with the new geopolitics of Asia. Haruko, can I begin with a question to you? So Japan is a treaty ally of the United States. So how much does it coordinate its foreign policy with Washington? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping for a bigger answer, to be honest. (laughs) Um, I think this is a perennial question for Japan's foreign policy, foreign security policy, because yes, we are an ally to the United States. But at the same time, we have a particularly binding arrangement because of our constitutional restraint on having a sort of an offensive capability for our military forces. And therefore, since 1945, we've been totally reliant, ultimately, on the United States for our security, which in a way binds us in many ways in terms of how much freedom, scope, we have in terms of our own independent foreign and security policies. So it's very much dependent on how Washington decides on what it wants to do, how it wants to engage with Asia. So I think that's pretty much the baseline. But it doesn't mean that Japan has to do everything that Washington says or doesn't have its own independent abilities. Well, no, actually, uh, you're right. In fact, one of the areas that hopefully we'll be looking at today, Southeast Asia, is one area where Japan has traditionally in the post-war era, but also before the war, carved out its own policy agendas and also relationship with the ASEAN states. Well, we've established that in many ways it is a kind of an echo of American ideas, but also has some independence. And Brendan, would you say the same thing about South Korea? Uh, Certainly, at at least as much even. Korea is a very staunch ally of the United States, as much out of necessity as anything else, because, of course, uh, the United States is the security guarantor of South Korea against the northern neighbor. And indeed, much of the South Korean foreign policy is directed to bilateral relations with the United States. So Korea has been described as being joined at the hip with the United States. And if we describe Japan as a reactive state, as has been done, may be even more applicable for Korea. There are 28,500 American servicemen and women stationed in Korea, and these are sometimes a source of tension. Certainly, there are concerns about the impact of these servicemen and women, but also there are concerns about the potential withdrawal of these American forces, leaving Korea exposed. There have also been a number of tensions over the status of forces agreement, especially when a couple of middle school girls were run over by an American tank and then were not prosecuted in Korean courts. Also, the special measures agreements, which is 
who pays for what in terms of hosting the American forces here. So lots of tensions. And there's a particularly uneasy relationship when it comes to democratic administrations in Korea, when there's a Republican administration in Washington. Of course, now we have democratic administrations in both, at least for another couple of years. But there are still tensions over civil liberties in South Korea, the transfer of operational control in times of war of the Korean forces that at the moment, the American command is in charge of the Korean forces. So quite a lot of problems. President Moon is certainly trying to tread an independent path to that of Washington. But this has been an ongoing problem. The degree of independence in practice may be a lot less than desired by progressive administrations in Seoul. Right. So we'll turn now to a bit of how these countries are looking out into their near abroad. And Korea has its new southbound policy and Japan. I mean, over the past few years, we've seen Japan step up military relations with the Philippines when President Duterte fell out with President Obama. Then Japan picked up the Trans-Pacific Partnership free trade deal when President Trump pulled out. And then it led the way on its idea of the free and open Indo-Pacific. So Haruka, do you think Japan sees itself taking on a regional role that might previously have been played by the US? I think it's a difficult question to answer in a yes or no way. Yes, perhaps reluctantly in the past, but now we have to sort of step up. The Trump administration certainly had an impact in terms of not so much Trump's policy itself, but also the sort of vicissitude of American policy, whereby Japan also had to at least find its own ground. So in that sense, yes, we have to be a little more involved in the decision makings or even the sort of strategic planning for the region. And do you think it's doing that enthusiastically or is it reluctant because of, you know, the the baggage of World War II or whatever, or its desire not to rock the boat too much? Or does it see itself, you know, kind of saying, thinking, this is our time, we've got to now kind of live up to our economic potential, for example? I think that's also um, rather a mixture of both reluctance and also with a sense of, well, in a way, uh, inevitability because of the developing situation, particularly with China becoming much, much more controlling and prominent. But I think it's also about who you talk to in Japan. Certainly at the moment, we are particularly led by a nationalist sort of more bravado government when it comes to trying to strike out in terms of showing Japanese power. As you probably recall, when Prime Minister Abe assumed leadership again in 2012, one of the first things he said in Washington, D.C. is Japan is back. But then again, it's sort of about we weren't quite sure at least where was Japan coming back from and where did Japan want to go. So whether it's reluctance or not, it's just becoming more realistic. And at least in terms of some of the foreign and security policy initiatives, one of the important perhaps benchmark is whether the Japanese people themselves feel reluctant or not supportive of these government initiatives that are seen to be rather more high profile politically. And I believe that the Japanese people have changed at least since the past 20 years to embrace its international role and also be a little more supportive 
of policies that might otherwise be seen as aggressive or alarming to its neighbors who still have a lot of angst about Japanese historical baggage. And from the population's perspective, do they see a difference between, for example, an increased diplomatic role and, say, a military role, sending ships into the South China Sea or, or whatever it might be? Or do they sort of see any kind of assertive foreign policy as something to be concerned about? The Japanese people actually, on the whole, are very supportive of initiatives that have something to do with, for example, peace building or issues of that are combined with sort of development aid. And so essentially non-military, non-combative. And the other sort of hard security side of, for example, sending ships to the South China Sea or indeed having an operations in Africa that involve the sort of more of a danger zone, I think the Japanese are still quite cautious and reluctant at a popular level anyway. I can remember in 2012, I went to the Cobra Gold multinational military exercises in Thailand and they had an exercise. All the other countries called it um, the evacuation of non-combatants. It was about, you know, kind of a civilian evacuation. The Japanese were taking part in exactly the same exercise, but they had to call it the transfer of Japanese nationals overseas. Because even if you said non-combatant, it meant that possibly there were combatants around. And that was too diplomatically sensitive at the time. So things have changed quite a lot, obviously, in the last 10 years, because we're now sort of seeing a more assertive presence, I think. Well, actually, I think it's just perhaps these things are evolving. This isn't to say that the Japanese are embracing more of a, you know, becoming more permissive to a more blatant military role. But if the Japanese, the ordinary folks, were relatively ill-informed or, you know, not understanding some of these sort of importance of these uh, international operations, they're certainly better informed now. So it's sort of combined with a learning curve of the Japanese combined with some sort of aggressive rhetoric from the right. But I would like to really stress the fact that that doesn't mean that the Japanese want to go sort of fully remilitarize. And the reason why I can say this is because every time the debate or the idea, suggestion about revising the Japanese constitution to fully remilitarize, the people tend to be a lot more cautious on this. They're okay with other things, but when it does come to a sort of, let's just be a fully-fledged military power, I think they tend to be the counterweight to, for example, people like Prime Minister Abe going perhaps too far in the rhetoric of becoming an independent nation, so to speak. Brendan, if we turn to South Korea, I mean, it hasn't been as active, I would say. Do you think that's fair as Japan? But, I mean, it's sold fighter jets and ships to the Philippines and submarines to Indonesia and made a naval visit or two to Vietnam. I mean, is that just sort of doing business or is that a sign of a more assertive foreign policy too? Well, actually, I'm not sure that I would agree that Korea has been less active than Japan in terms of hard power or military issues. Certainly, A lot has been covered at the moment about joining the Quad, for instance. For those who don't know, the Quad is the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, Japan, India, Australia and the United States. Yes, but South Korea is already one of the top 10 arms exporters in the world. And yes, much of it is within the region. The recipients of Korean weapons 
Number two and number three are Philippines and Thailand. Interestingly, number one is the UK. Well, well. And of course, Korea was heavily involved in the Vietnam War. It's very much a militarized rather than demilitarized polity when compared to Japan. But I, I think what we do have in Korean foreign policy is they are hiding their light under a bushel, so to speak. They want to give the impression of not being a hard power diplomatic force. Certainly, if you look at the way they engage in Southeast Asia, or actually throughout the East Asian region, they've studiously avoided taking a stance on the South China Sea dispute, for instance. And again, this is partly because whilst they're something of a reactive state with regards to the United States, they're also something of a reactive state with regard to China. They're so strategically enmeshed with a complicated relationship with China that they would rather not talk about military power. Likewise, they have this self-perception, and they often describe themselves as being a shrimp among whales, that even though they're one of the world's top 10 economic powers and top 10 military powers, they like to think of themselves as a, a small power that is put upon. And so they'd much rather look to deploy influence in other non-military areas. They certainly don't want to be the deputy to America's sheriff in the region, unlike other middle powers like, for instance, Australia. So then you find South Korea is focusing much more on promoting institutions in East Asia in partnership with ASEAN, or they look at soft power public diplomacy using ODA. Even the Korean military, when it is deployed overseas, it's deployed in peacekeeping operations or in disaster relief. For instance, when Typhoon Haiyan impacted the Philippines and the Philippines called for aid from its military partners. The Korean military deployed for much longer than anybody else did, and in larger numbers. So this is the sort of thing that Korea is looking for in its niche diplomacy. They don't want to be seen as a military power projector in the way that the United States is. They're certainly not taking over that sort of regional role. But they are thinking about other regional roles that they could play maybe even using their military, but in a non-hard power way. Right. So both countries then have these pretty extensive trade and investment and development, ODA, official development assistance connections with, with many countries in their region, particularly Southeast Asia. Do you think they use them as some kind of leverage for political or other ends? Simple answer to that, absolutely. In fact, explicitly and overtly, South Korea uses these investment, development, ODA, soft power policies for political ends. And this also includes things like cultural diplomacy, the Korean wave, which was initiated by the Korean government to export K-pop and K-dramas as widely as possible, but especially in Southeast Asia. Likewise, you mentioned the new Southern policy before. And this is an explicitly political aim to provide South Korean leadership in the region. COVID diplomacy, both in terms of providing testing kits, protective gear, including masks, and also in terms of cooperating on vaccines. This has been 
explicitly identified by the Blue House, the center of power of Korea, as a way to further Korean soft power. So all of these are absolutely an attempt by Korea as a middle power to identify a policy niche through which they can get more diplomatic bang for their buck. And what do you think they want to get out of that in the end? Is it, you know, in order to sell, you know, more Samsung mobile phones? Or do you think they are, is it a competition, say, with China or even Japan or other countries? Or are they trying to build a regional order that they think is stable and good for them? Do you see a kind of an objective? I think there's a threefold objective. One is is clearly to sell more high-tech gear. The current government has identified leadership in chips, in mobile phones, in high-tech endeavors, global leadership, let alone regional leadership, as one of their major ambitions. But secondly, I think it's absolutely to build a regional order that is more reflected of peace and development, because this is also in Korea's national interest. And thirdly, I think we mustn't underestimate the extent to which Korean people and Korean political administrations recognize the benefit they have received by engaging in the wider world, that there's this paying back syndrome that because South Korea owes its very existence to engagement with the outside operating environment, it needs to contribute to that. So I think what we have here is something of a a noble opportunity whereby Seoul can pursue policies in Korea's national interest, which also may have significant collateral benefit for other regional partners. So kind of enlightened self-interest, is is that how you would frame it? Absolutely, yes. And Haruko, do you see the same thing with Japan? I mean, Japan's uh, influence has been apparent for, I suppose, much longer. I mean, you know, major organizer of the Asian Development Bank, for example, going back quite a few decades. How do you think it sees these links? Are are they tools for it to use or are they altruistic? I would very much agree with what Brenton said that it would also apply to Japan. And I think Japan has been, especially since the 1970s, since the Fukuda Doctrine in 1977, when we started to re-engage with Southeast Asia, Uh, in terms of aiding their economic development, likewise with China and Korea. It was partly, of course, to compensate for the damage that the country wrecked in World War II, but at the same time, it was also indispensable for Japan to create an international environment in which it can prosper and also prospering with others. So definitely, I would say that there's a lot of convergence in terms of what the Japanese and the Korean interests are when it comes to using these diplomatic tools, particularly these economic diplomatic tools. So it's really quite fascinating to hear Brendan's account of Korea's intention. I think it very much echoes Japan's. It certainly does. Don't tell the Koreans that. Yes, I know. Basically, don't tell tell each other that. Because, of course, I mean, there's something I think maybe you're both suggesting there is that there are also tensions between Japan and Korea in their relationship. Uh, Brendan, I mean, are they in some way competing, the Koreans, with Japan on some of these influence means? Yeah, there is a degree of competition there. 
And certainly they've been very careful to avoid using terms that the Japanese have popularized in advance. For instance, human security. Japan has been one of the major promoters of the concept of human security. And even though a lot of Korean initiatives also reflect human security, they tended to avoid using that term until actually the most recent administration, Moon Jae-in, became the first Korean president to use the term human security. But there is this competition for niche diplomacy in this reputational do-gooding, if you like, that they do want to one-up the Japanese, but at the same time, they're very willing to learn from the Japanese, as long as they don't actually have to acknowledge that they are learning from the Japanese while doing so. Haruko, would you say the Japanese have a similar attitude towards uh, South Korea? I don't know. I don't know if it's the similar attitude. It's probably like the mirror opposite. I think, to be quite honest, in terms of these sort of niche diplomacy areas where we have all these sort of, you know, similar agenda, a similar rhetoric, I don't think that the Japanese are particularly conscious of Korea per se, whether as a rival or in an antagonistic way. It's basically more to do with, I think, the Japanese consciousness at the moment would be more towards China. And this is something I think is just inevitable because Japan, for good or bad, at least knows that it aided financially and economically developing both China or Korea and Southeast Asia. So I think if that is haughtiness on the Japanese side, perhaps that is something that the Japanese should realize soon. But in terms of whether we see Korea as a competition, I don't think so. It's just not in the purview in these things. Japan's financial aid and engagement, obviously, you know, you were saying, helped to get China to where it is now and development and trade and all the rest of it. Does Japan now see itself locked in a competition for influence and for restructuring the regional order with China? Is it a simple kind of black and white choice for them? It's either our way of doing things or China's way. And so therefore, it's a serious struggle between the two now. No, no, it's a little more complex. We have to bring in the United States into the equation when it comes to China, because the Japanese, definitely, Japan definitely wants to be on the side of America insofar as it keeps the international environment in which Japan operates relatively stable, familiar, status quo, call it rule-based, whatever. So I think it's in the Japanese interest. But at the same time, Japan's relationship with China is far more complex. It goes way, way back. So there is a kind of strategic recognition between the two countries that to find a way where they settle for where they can cooperate and perhaps choose to disagree, but not bring things up into the open, which has been the way that's been done in the past. But at least in the past 10 years or so, ever since these territorial issues, such as the Senkaku issue started to erupt, those things that were at least pragmatically cast aside are now coming out in the open, which that is perhaps the one that makes it a bit difficult for Japan to handle China, at least on its own. Because I think there's a tendency for people outside the region to emphasize things like the dispute over the Senkaku Daioyu Islands 
as being emblematic of a kind of Japan-China confrontation and suggesting that Japan is, you know, with the US. And I guess also from the, some on the Chinese side, sort of seeing Japan as part of America's containment of China or whatever. Do you think that's a fair way of looking at it? No, I think it's wrong, actually. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's fine. Not... <laughs> that's why you're here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit misleading. It's, it's oversimplified, I think. Japan has the biggest problem when the United States and China either do not get along or at least try to organize this region according to their own agreements, because they are far bigger than Japan. So Japan knows this. In terms of Japan and China clashing, this is something that I think even the Japanese right wing would like to play on this idea that you know we have to be very sort of prepared for China. And it is very much the case, particularly for the self-defense forces, that they're prepared more towards missiles from China than they are from missiles from North Korea. I mean, there's definitely something real about it. But in terms of that sort of, are we on a collision course? No. The collision course is not Japan and China. I think it's more to do with the meta drivers in this region. There's definitely more United States and China. And Brendan, would you say that South Korea is in the same position? Well, South Korea is tied to both the US and China, and they try to avoid upsetting either. What we tend to see is that conservative administrations in Seoul will be more closely allied to the United States, friendlier towards Japan, but antagonistic towards China and North Korea, and progressive administrations the reverse, that you're more likely to get engagement with North Korea, more likely to get friendly conversations with China but more likely to have a fairly severe standoff with Tokyo or also some problems with Washington. And presumably there's a degree of nationalism involved in there. It's not just a sort of pro-peace, pro-war type stance. No, it's interesting, actually, that here in South Korea, the progressives are often seen as being more nationalistic than the conservatives. They're the ones that will often resent the degree of reactive statehood of Korea towards the United States. They're certainly the ones that shake their fists at Japan for past and perceived present wrongdoings. Whereas the conservatives, of course, a lot of the conservatives actually have very strong business and even political and cultural ties to Japan. So the conservatives are often seen as being in league with the Japanese. Let's look a little bit about how the countries are working with the region. I mean, we talked about how they use trade and aid and investment a little bit before. If we take a specific example like Myanmar, which is obviously a crisis at the moment. I mean, the past five years, Japan was the fourth largest investor in Myanmar. Korea, I think, was the eighth largest. Do you think that gives them leverage now over the military junta that took power in the coup in February? And would they use it? I mean, maybe Haruka, we could start with you first. The Myanmar case is really interesting because I think it brings out what a dilemma that Japan is now in, which we haven't really touched upon. But I think this is something that will be quite important for Japanese foreign policy in the next 
decade or so. And just to say that there was a news that one of the Japanese journalists was detained or arrested on 3rd of May, I think, will be released. This news came and it was reported in the way that the Myanmar military, the junta basically said that uh, the Japanese government made a request and so they are going to oblige. And the way that it's been reported in Japan has been somewhat sort of optimistically saying that the Japanese way or the back channels or whatever they have, the special ties they have with Myanmar worked. I am not so sure whether that is the only case. But I think the problem with Japan now is that the Japanese government's approach is not necessarily seen as effective by the people, by the Japanese themselves. There was a survey that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs conducted in March, which was a month after the coup. And it was explicitly asking whether the Japanese government is doing or should be doing more for the democratization of Myanmar. And basically, over 70% of the respondents said, yes, we should do something more proactively. And basically what this says is that I think the foreign ministry was trying to measure the national mood. Because after the coup, the Japanese did issue a very mild statement about, well, we're dismayed and so on. But the Japanese government didn't sign any of the other international sort of uh, letters condemning the coup. And the point I'm trying to make is that the Japanese have finally come to a point where it cannot play this sort of aid diplomacy, which is only focused on economic gains. And finally, this is bringing to a kind of a stop relief about how and where Japan stands in terms of these value issues such as democracy. And I would say that this has been one of the longer problems that the Japanese, at least diplomatic principles and rhetoric and our actions have had. They've not really been consistent with what we have been at least saying on paper. So it's basically sort of walk the talk, walk the walk kind of issue. And I think with Myanmar, in this case, I think Japan is a bit stuck. It really probably needs to come out with at least a firmer statement about condemning the junta and also becoming more explicit about supporting democratization. However, the drawback for doing that is that it's never really been so explicit with the other Southeast Asian countries in the past 40 years. So in that sense, I think at least at the government level, Japan is a bit stuck. So this isn't going to see a complete change in the way that Japan does its foreign policy. It's it's more a kind of a moment of recognition that maybe something is going to have to change in the future, would you say? Well, I would think that some things would change because, as you know, one of the first Japanese companies to basically say that we're not going to work with the military anymore was Kirin, the beer maker. You know, this is quite new, I think, for a Japanese you know, national brand, which is also a global brand, making a conscious decision out of these kinds of human rights or democracy, as I said, these value-related issues. 
if this is going to be something that the other Japanese companies are going to be exposed to and conscious about, then this could actually bring about some sort of fundamental paradigmic shift in the way that we even conduct our ODA diplomacy. I think I'm right in saying that Japan suspended its ODA, its, its official development assistance to Myanmar fairly early on. Am I right in thinking that? Yes. But, you know, suspending ODA, that's relatively done quite frequently. We even did it during the, I think, the first Gulf War. As early as uh, the first crisis, we suspended all sort of transaction with Iraq. So this financial tool is something. But the point is, it's really about how explicit Japan wants to be in giving the reasons. It's not just to say that, oh, we do not want to have the shootings. But rather, do we want to seriously engage in supporting democracy? And it's a similar kind of thing we could say about Hong Kong. And another litmus test, I think, would come with Taiwan. Taiwan, huge issue. I'm not sure we'll have time to get into Taiwan today. Brendan, I haven't really heard much from South Korea on Myanmar. Is there any signs that they're unhappy with what's going on and that they might be prepared to do anything about it? In some ways, Korea, again, like Japan, is on something of a cleft stick here. They don't know which way to go. But the Korean public have been extremely active in terms of championing democracy and taking to the streets in Korea. But also you see a lot of demonstrations and universities in support of Taiwan, in support of Hong Kong activism, and now in support of the people of Myanmar against this military dictatorship. So the government is going to have to respond to this, but also the big business conglomerates, who are the ones that have been particularly proactive in getting involved in Myanmar, especially, for instance, the Daewoo gas pipeline, which is being extensively criticized. So what the Koreans have tried to do is look at something of a third way between boycotts and sanctions versus unconditional engagement. And that's stay in Myanmar, but don't pay dividends to Myanmar military stakeholders. So try to stop the military from benefiting from engagement with Korea. As my kids would say, good luck with that. I I wonder what the army are going to do about um, that kind of behavior. At the moment, the Korean conglomerates are saying, look, we're just not going to pay those dividends. So I don't know whether this means that the military is then going to confiscate Korean assets. We will see. But what we've also seen is the Korean International Cooperation Agency, the, the main donor agency, has traditionally prioritized development partnerships with Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines. These are six special development partnerships. And they've spent a lot of money on education and training, especially scholarships for government officials to to come to Korea and study for degrees in public administration, in development, in politics, in international relations, and so on. And what they've already done is take Myanmar off that list of scholarships of government officials. And also, COICA, the Korea International Cooperation Agency, is looking at mainstreaming what they term the humanitarian development peace building nexus, which is going to have very important ramifications 
for future engagement with Myanmar, as well as other problematic regimes. One final question to you both. Do you think the the two countries, Japan and South Korea, are looking to work with others in a kind of, I mean, maybe, Brendan, you were hinting at that just then, in a kind of coordinated way. Is there a sort of democracies alliance, in inverted commas, or some kind of rules-based system, and they want to be part of it, or are they just happy to sort of play their own games? Certainly from Korea's perspective, it's not so much a democratic alliance as it is a middle power alliance or cooperation. And I think that we can see this not only through relationships with Southeast Asia and the middle powers in Southeast Asia, where, as I mentioned, Korea has been investing a great deal in institution building and has promoted the East Asian community, so Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, as something of a pet project. But also, Korea played a leadership role in establishing MICTA, which is Mexico, Indonesia, Korea, Turkey, Australia, a specifically middle power grouping to advance these niche diplomatic efforts in promoting human rights, democracy, but also development, peace, and to a certain degree, human security, although, as I mentioned, they wouldn't actually call it human security. The Moon administration has also, in recent months, sought to de-escalate tensions and repair ties with Tokyo. And we do see some cooperation in both ODA and peacekeeping operations between the two countries. So I think that really South Korea is keen on partnerships with like-minded, but also like-encumbered, maybe, middle powers, also reaching out to the EU as well as Southeast Asia and further afield. And the way that Korea is able to provide something of a leadership role here is, of course, it's somewhat unique in not having any imperial baggage or even neo-imperial baggage, that maybe its initiatives would be more acceptable than some of the other middle powers trying to show leadership like the UK or Australia, for instance, let alone Japan. Haruko, final word to you. Japan, how does it see itself as part of these international groupings? Well, Japan considers itself a major power. I think the the word middle power sits rather uncomfortably, at least in the mainstream policy circles. That does not mean that the kind of diplomatic agenda that Japan's been pursuing, it's very similar with the middle powers that Brendan's talking about. Japan is the penultimate middle power per se in terms of not trying to sort of build institutions, not use military means, so basically not engage in power politics, and try to sort of promote some progressive agenda. But whether in terms of the groupings, particularly in this region, I think the Quad pretty much sums up where Japan wants to operate from. Quad itself is it's anything that anybody wants it to be. It's not as if India and Japan and Australia and the United States are all agreeing on what it is or what it should be promoting and so on. One very loose umbrella is their democracies. But I think it boils down to uh, perhaps the rule-based international order. And some explicitly say that this is to encircle China. Which may be the case, but I don't think that it's any of the countries 
real intention to completely contain China, perhaps is a kind of a way to let China engage in a different way than it currently is. But I think the challenge for Japan, and I think it is in the minds of policymakers, is how to include these other like-minded, or at least on countries such as Korea, such as the other ASEAN countries, to be on a collaborative, cooperative relationship with Quad. I mean, Quad isn't really an organization, it's just a loose framework. But at least some of the agenda setting that's done in Quad does have the regional issues in mind. So at the moment, I think the Japanese would definitely like to strengthen not so much the Quad itself, but through the Quad partners, the regional institutions that are already in place in East Asia or the Indo-Pacific region. Because as you know, I mean, this region has a lot of overlapping regional forums. So I think that's basically where Japan is. Thank you very much. A nod towards the alphabet soup of Asian regional institutions there at the end. Plenty for another edition of Asia Matters to discuss. My guests have been Haruko Sato from the Osaka School of International Public Policy and Brendan Howe from the Iwa Women's University in Korea. My name is Bill Hayton and I'm with the Asia Pacific Programme at Chatham House. This episode was edited by Vincent Nee and produced by Rebecca Bailey. To keep up to date with Asia Matters, please do subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms and our website, asiamatterspod.com. Thanks for listening.